listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Quick reminder before we get started that KHOL has a new limited podcast series with Steo called Facets, Voices of the Mountain Life. In five episodes, Facets explores the passions, tensions, and healing that people find while living in a mountain town. The first episode is out now wherever you listen to podcasts, and the rest will be coming to your feed every other Friday through the end of May. Please subscribe today and help us spread the word by leaving a rating and review for the show in Apple Podcasts. And hey, leave a review for Jackson Unpacked while you're there. Now, coming up on today's show, how can smaller music festivals like Tree Fort in Boise maintain their indie charm while still continuing to grow? For at least five days a year, we've convinced a very much broader public to show up for a bunch of weird music, you know, bands they wouldn't normally go see. Plus, KHOL Spanish language correspondent Alicia Unger reports on how one of Jackson's few Mexican bakeries is facing closure. They're struggling because there is no space where they can move the bakery. But first, we start with a conversation about how Wyoming is gearing up to more broadly welcome the cars of the future and electrify its roadways. The Wyoming Department of Transportation is holding a series of public meetings across the state this month to get feedback on its draft zero-emission vehicle plan. That's an effort to use federal funds to build out the state's electric vehicle infrastructure. KHOL's Kyle Mackey spoke to Wildfile Energy and Climate reporter Dustin Blyzeffer to learn more. Blyzeffer's April 2nd story is titled, Wyoming Prepares to Electrify Roadways. Dustin, thank you so much for joining us today on KHOL. Well, thank you for having me. So your recent story for Wildfile dives into how Wyoming is gearing up to spend about $24 million to electrify the state's roadways. Can you give us an overview of that, of how that money is coming into the state and what the plan is for how to use it? Yeah, so right now the Wyoming Department of Transportation has a, about $4 million um, from this federal electric vehicle infrastructure program. And they're going to get an additional $5 million each year for like the next four years. And so th- that comes with some um, federal priorities attached to it. The first priorities are the interstates, I-80 first, then I-25, then I-90. And then the, the second kind of priority roadways are kind of the main and most kind of vital routes to Grand Teton National Park and Yellowstone National Park. After those federal priorities, then the state is um, welcome to build out the EV infrastructure for general connectivity throughout the state. You know, things like trying to fill in gaps in in the central portion of the state, which EV drivers say that, you know, there's a real need there. Going back to the big picture of electric vehicles, uh, despite costing more upfront, we know that EVs are a key way that we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and fight climate change and also save some money at the pump. So this sounds good, but we also know there are some big challenges to widespread adoptions of EVs in Wyoming, right? And you wrote about some of those in your piece. Can you, can you talk about some of those specific Wyoming challenges? A couple of EV drivers I spoke with said that 
the prices are really coming down. And one EV driver I spoke to in particular said, you can spend well over $50,000 on a new diesel truck. And, you know, a lot of folks in Wyoming uh, like their pickups and, and, and need those types of vehicles too. And Patrick Lawson is an EV driver who lives in Rollins. They have several EV vehicles in his household. And, you know, they drive to the mountains. And these electric vehicles are really high performance. And so you can pull a light camper, you know, up the mountains. He, for his work, he drives across the state, drives hundreds of miles across the state. And he and his employees often pull a utility trailer. Just more kind of aspects about driving an EV vehicle in Wyoming are, you know, obviously the long distances. And depending on the car that you have, you know, generally with the full charge, you can get about 300 miles, I'm told, uh, particularly in a, in a newer Tesla model. So you do have to kind of plan your routes accordingly if you're driving through the middle of Wyoming or from one side of the state to the other side. And like a lot of like a lot of states in the Rockies, we have a lot of inclines, hills, things like that. Uh, that definitely chews into your your mileage and efficiency. But but on the other hand, you know you can gain some of that mileage back when you're going downhill. <laughs> it, it helps recharge the battery. And in fact, you know those mileage challenges apply to gasoline diesel vehicles as well. So speaking of Teslas, you found in the course of your reporting that there are 460 EVs currently registered in Wyoming, and about 360 of them are Teslas. And there's also more Tesla charging stations across the state than for other brands. What does that mean for the future of of EVs here and accessibility to other companies? Yeah, that's right. You know, and and Folks in Wyoming are going to want to have different options when it comes to electric vehicles, you know, uh, pickup trucks and you know things with towing power. And as those kind of models and types of vehicles, you know, those choices are opening up. There, there's a real need for charging stations that'll fit all models. So you know, it was more than five years ago Tesla started in, installing charging stations in Wyoming. We started seeing them pop up here and there probably in Jackson. I've seen them in Sheridan. And those are exclusive to Tesla models. So that's a real limiting factor for Wyoming drivers. And not only Wyoming drivers, but most of the electric vehicles that are traveling on Wyoming roads are tourists. Tourists, and we're starting to see more commercial uh, vehicles that are electric. And so if we want that type of commerce to continue, we're gonna to have to accommodate that traffic is, is what the Wyoming Department of Transportation told me. Really interesting. Well, Dustin, thank you so much for joining us today on K-12. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. More information about how to make public comments on Wyoming's plan to electrify its roadways is available on the State Department of Transportation's website. The Treefort Music Festival in Boise, Idaho, 
celebrated its 10th anniversary last month. The four-day event boasted more than 25,000 visitors, but still managed to maintain its indie and non-commercial feel. K2L's Will Walkie covered the festival and brings us this report on how its organizers are already looking into how to keep the magic going for the next decade. Jackson folk musician Missy Joe was all smiles after her set at Treefort's Wyoming Showcase, held in an open lot in Boise's downtown between a local brewery and a pub. Joe was not only happy to escape Teton County's mud season weather, she was also excited to support other Cowboy State musicians. The Gringos and Grammys is on right now and they're playing surf rock. What, like who in Wyoming would you think would be a surf rock band? And then the range that exists is, is so awesome. I think people think Wyoming is country music, but it's this interesting mix of everything. That unique mix is exactly what longtime Boise resident Eric Gilbert had in mind when he helped put the Tree Fort Festival together back in 2012. Gilbert now serves as festival director and talent booker, but he originally got inspired through his own experience as an artist. When I was 26, 27, my wife and I started a band, and she's very talented. I'm moderately talented. And uh, with a friend to start touring the country in a van, pretty DIY style, and just wanted to just kind of create the life experience that we wanted. And for me, it was like, okay, well, and, you know, and I, it was pretty organic, but there was some intention of like, okay, well, can we build the kind of scene in Boise that, that would make it feel good to live here? When the festival started, about 100 bands played at Tree Fort. This year, there were more than 500. Gilbert says somehow, audience members are convinced to come watch acts they've never heard of before. If you're looking for Taylor Swift, you're in the wrong place. For me, it's curated from the lens of, of artists and music nerds, <laughs> you know, like uh, college and community radio stations. And just because it's not popular doesn't mean it's not good. And so for at least five days a year, we've convinced a very much broader public to show up for a bunch of weird music, you know, bands they wouldn't normally go see. And there's not just the tunes. The festival has also grown to include different so-called forts for food, storytelling, technology, and even yoga. Gilbert says that all happened over time through local partnerships. And I think some people think that was all part of the big plan. No, it was just like we just listened when other people from different niches in the community came like, hey, can we start a film for it? And like, yeah, will you do it? <laughs> the end product is an expanding event mirroring the explosion of Boise as a metro area. The festival was covered this year by national press, and half the attendees were from outside Idaho. The question is, how does Tree Fork keep this momentum going? A lot of stimulation going on, and y'all still made it here at 11, so thanks for being here. Um, the future of music festivals was the subject of a panel discussion the day after the Wyoming Showcase. 32 million people attend at least one U.S. music festival a year, according to Nielsen Music. There's a big opportunity for smaller markets beyond Coachella or Lollapalooza to get their own slice of the pie. Reese Tanimora lives in Seattle and works for a folk festival there. Festivals, whether folks will acknowledge it or not, funders and government leaders will acknowledge it or not, do create social impact. Can you say that again? <laughs> <laughs> Festivals create social impact. And event organizers are looking for more ways to create social change. Treefort is building a permanent venue for the first time this year, which will be their main stage for the next festival. Other events are trying to pay their staff more and even provide retirement funds for visiting artists. I would love to build out sort of uh, the safety net system, you know, like between festivals where if an artist is playing, you know, different venues and festivals throughout the year, then they're in the system. For Gilbert, creating more opportunities in bigger venues is great. 
but he doesn't want Treefort to lose that it factor that made it successful initially, that Boise charm. But he thinks some change is inevitable. It's hard. Like, I, I empathize with some of these bigger festivals, South by Southwest or something. At some point, it sort of leads, I'm guessing they lose control over some of the culture around it, right? And so that's something we put a lot of thought into. Something else he's put a lot of thought into is allowing space for diversity, artistically and racially, but also geographically. Taylor Craig is from the Wyoming Arts Council. She was offered six spots this year to showcase Cowboy State talent. 25 bands applied. It helps build the audiences of Wyoming musicians beyond, you know, their their town to promote them so they can continue to make a living being a musician um, and hopefully stay in Wyoming creating that music. Craig also says she was able to work well with Eric Gilbert and Treefort because they trusted her expertise to find the right applicants, like Missy Joe. We need more, as we've spent some isolated time in these past couple of years, more opportunities for us to come together and, and more than just Let's go to the bar and see a band, but oh, look at this art installation, look at this play, and there's also music a part of it, and uh, it's what's keeping us human. Treefort kicks off spring and summer tours for many local artists, but for the organizers who put together two festivals in just seven months due to pandemic disruptions, now comes some well-deserved R&R. Will Walkie, KHOL News. Just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. La Canasta del Pan or the bread basket of Jackson Hole, is one of the only Mexican bakeries in Jackson and a unique business beloved by its customers, many of whom are Latino. The bakery has been around for 11 years, but now faces an uncertain future as the owners will have to leave their current location in the coming months to make way for the expansion of their neighbor and fellow local business, Sweet Cheeks Meats. Next, reporter Will Walkie talks to KHOL Spanish-language correspondent Alicia Unger about her reporting on the plight of the bakery. And then we'll hear Unger's full story in Spanish. Alicia Unger, thank you so much, as always, for joining KHOL. Thank you very much, as always, for giving me the opportunity to tell the stories. So for this recent story, you profiled a business in town that's really important for the Latino community. And also is coming on some hard times. Will you tell me a little bit about this story? Yes. The bakery is, is called The Basket, and Spanish means La Canasta. They're located pretty much in downtown, and um, the, the bakery has been there for 11 years. But since the last three years, a new couple came into the business and took over. Their names are Juan Morillon and Guillermina Jimenez. When they took over... They didn't know anything about a bakery business, so they start learning. Just, it was a big adventure for them. But at the same time, it was a need because they have two kids. In, they had four kids, but two are in, in university. So for them, 
they need this business to make it happen uh, and to help the kids. So when they took over the bakery, the first year was, you know, very, start very slow and start and it, when, when it start getting better, the pandemic hits. So the whole year of the pandemic was really bad. And then apparently they couldn't recuperate after that. The business next to them saw an opportunity and decided to expand his business. So, of course, the owner um, say yes to the butcher. And uh, so now this couple are, are struggling because uh, although they are very grateful for the opportunity of, of being in that space, they're struggling because there is no space where they can move the bakery. Can you tell me just quickly about the products that they sell? And can you get these sorts of products anywhere else in Jackson Hole? The main product is Mexican bread and Mexican pastries. You may find other this type of pastries in other stories, especially in the Mexican ones, but they are prefabricated for big, big companies or they're not fresh. So it's very difficult to find uh, uh, bakers that do this type of product fresh. This is a story in many ways about the challenging business community of Jackson Hole. Um, an important voice that you got from this is actually the owner of the building who's facilitating this change. And unfortunately, he's a part of the bakery having to leave. What did the business owner say when you talked to them? The owner was very kind to take my phone call, even though that his health is not um, very good conditions right now. He was very kind to take my, my call and explain me that this decision that he had to take is merely business. Unfortunately, because his condition, he has to look up to his family. And this was a good opportunity for, for them. And so what's the latest for the bakery owners? What are they doing now? Um, what's the future of the bakery? The bakery won't longer exist. The butcher will that is next to the bakery will expand the business and the bakery will go away completely. So the owners of the bakery right now are looking for another space and they are asking the community for help if they hear or know about any space in town to please let them know. They prefer to stay in Jackson. However, they understand that if they can't, they're willing to move their business to Drix or Victor. And I just want to add the fact that Juan and Guillermina are very grateful to the owner, and the owner is wishing them the best of luck. Well, thank you very much, Alicia. We'll now take the listener to your story in Espanol. Gracias. Thank you. Enjoy it. KHOL Noticias en Español lo saluda Alicia Anger. Este es el sonido de la mezcladora industrial de la panadería La Canasta en el pueblo de Jackson. Bien que llega el olor del pan y todo está bien sabroso y todo. Liz Luna asegura disfrutar de los productos y de la atención que ofrecen en este negocio. Nos gusta comprar el pan, todo está muy sabroso, este, siempre atienden muy bien. 
cuando no hay algo de lo que buscamos, siempre nos encuentran la solución y nos recomiendan algo bien. Negocio en donde por 11 años se ha producido pan artesanal mexicano. Nosotros empezamos a, hace tres años, precisamente en abril. Juan Morillón y su esposa Guillermina Jiménez tomaron este negocio en el 2019 con la ilusión de continuar con la deliciosa tradición. Al principio, pues, bueno, nosotros no sabíamos nada en el primer año, eh, pues, que nosotros empezamos. Pero la necesidad de mantener a sus cuatro hijos y darles estudios universitarios a dos de ellos, comenta Guillermina con la voz entrecortada y los ojos al punto del llanto, fue su mayor motivación. Para seguir dando esta oportunidad para que es México es muy difícil. En México no podemos, tal vez, darles un vaso de leche, un pan, porque si podemos, por eso yo pido ayuda para si alguien nos puede ayudar a que esto siga. Y cuando parecía que el negocio comenzaba a repuntar, el COVID-19 llegó al pueblo de Jackson. La pandemia empezó y fue tiempos muy difíciles. Ahora esta panadería está a punto de cerrar. Y pues ahora sí tenemos que pues aceptar lo que él nos dijo. El señor Morillón se refiere a la decisión que tomó el señor Carl Ross, dueño de los establecimientos. Cuando él llegó aquí y nos dijo, ya no pueden estar aquí, no les voy a renovar otra, otro contrato. El señor Gross, quien asegura haber construido el edificio de los establecimientos ubicados en la esquina de Scott y Alpan Lanes en 1973, dio a KHOL el siguiente testimonio telefónicamente, pero declinó ser grabado. Honestamente, tuve que tomar una decisión hace aproximadamente un año. Esta fue una decisión estrictamente comercial. No tengo nada contra Juan y Mina. Les di más de 10 meses de anticipación. También les dije que si encuentran un lugar antes de que finalice su contrato, los iba a liberar. Esta fue una decisión estrictamente comercial, porque en realidad ellos me gustan. Sé que no han podido encontrar nada, pero espero puedan encontrar algo. Les deseo lo mejor de lo mejor, concluyendo con su testimonio, el señor Carl Gross. Fue algo súper difícil para nosotros, porque no sabíamos qué hacer. En primera, porque pues aquí en Jackson es muy difícil para conseguir un, un lugar, un espacio. Y pues hasta la fecha ahorita no sabemos y no tenemos algún lugar para, pues para resolver esto. Pero el término del contrato no es lo peor que está pasando esta pareja de panaderos. Con el incremento de las rentas en el pueblo de Jackson en los últimos años, no hay locales para continuar con su negocio. Sí, es triste. Una clienta de la panadería La Canasta, cuya identidad pidió no ser revelada por su estatus migratorio irregular, Aseguró ser residente de Jackson por más de 15 años y ser testigo de la crisis de vivienda que se vive en este lugar. Y desgraciadamente es algo que se sufre aquí en este pueblo, es algo que no es diferente. O sea, todos están pasando por lo mismo, no hay espacio, no hay lugar, no hay vivienda, es triste. La salida del pueblo de la panadería, asegura Luna, sería devastador para la comunidad mexicana de Jackson. Aquí cuando uno... Lo viene y lo compra y está recién hecho, está calientito y está bueno. Pues sí, es, estaría muy difícil que la cierren y que no encuentramos lo que es nuestra cultura, que es el pan. Yo sé que es difícil aquí en Jackson, pero quisiera pedir de su ayuda. Si saben por ahí de un espacio, me ayuden a, a buscar para que esto siga adelante, para que esto no desaparezca aquí en Jackson. 
y espero que la señora se encuentre un lugar para que le siga yendo bien, porque sé que es muy rico su pan. <ríe> ¿Eso qué ni qué? Alicia Anger, KHOL, Noticias en Español. Now for the weekly news roundup. Here are the headlines you might have missed this past week. A second booster shot of two COVID-19 vaccines is now available for older and immunocompromised individuals in Jackson Hole. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration authorized both Pfizer and Moderna doses last week. And Teton County Director of Health Jody Pond says she's hoping to get the word out to members of the community who are vulnerable to serious cases from the evolving Omicron variant of the coronavirus. Some of the data showing that um, your third booster is starting to wane, um, the effectiveness, and the people that are most at risk for hospitalization and potentially death would be the people over 65 and people 50 and over that have underlying health conditions. Pond says she's seeing high demand for booster appointments at Department of Health clinics, but Smith's and Albertsons are also offering the shots should spots fill up. As far as cases go, Pond says Jackson's rates remain low. However, she also says folks should be wary of a potential surge as people return from spring break. The iconic movie screen at the Spud Drive-In Theater in Teton Valley was toppled by a windstorm Monday night. K-12's Kyle Mackey has the story. Manager Jed Mum was trying to salvage the Spud's larger-than-life Idaho license plate-style sign when I stopped by the wreckage on a still windy Tuesday afternoon. He emerged from a heap of broken wood and metal that had held up the drive-in's movie screen since it was built in 1953. It's been a good screen for 70 years, and it finally got taken out by one of these massive windstorms. Um, I came out at 11 and looked out and saw a car drive all the way past the screen, and I was like, no way. And then the screen was gone, on its face, on the ground. Wind gusts and drigs reached 55 miles per hour around 9.30 p.m. Monday night, according to the National Weather Service. Despite the loss, Mum says the Spud's owner is committed to rebuilding and making the drive-in even better. A strain of avian flu has reached Wyoming, according to the Associated Press. Poultry producers across the state have been warned to keep a close eye on their flocks after the virus was identified in Johnson and Park counties. The highly pathogenic disease can infect both commercial and wild birds and can cause severe illness or sudden death. In a webinar last month, Maggie Baldwin of the Colorado Department of Agriculture said there's no current cure for the avian flu, which has spread to dozens of states across the U.S. So it's a foreign animal disease. Um, it impacts uh, animal health and welfare. It also has a significant economic impact to our producers, to the communities and, and to the, the economy. And there's a lot of downstream effects. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention say, thus far, this recent outbreak is not a public health concern, as no cases have been detected in humans. 
The war in Ukraine and resulting sanctions on Russian fossil fuels have thrown Wyoming into the center of the conversation about the future of American energy and the clean energy transition needed to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. That was the major takeaway from a virtual meeting held by the Wyoming Outdoor Council Wednesday, focused on how foreign policy can affect Wyoming communities. We know we have to transition. We know that's going to take new resources uh, and new technologies. And places like Wyoming are where folks are going to be looking to get those raw materials. John Burroughs is a conservation advocate for the council. He says the energy transition is a tough challenge for the environmental community because even lower carbon options like electric vehicles and nuclear energy still require inputs like rare earth minerals, lithium, cobalt, and uranium, all of which have to be mined and processed. And Wyoming is sitting on significant reserves of both rare earth minerals and uranium. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strombucket. You can help us spread the word about Jackson Unpacked by leaving a rating and review for the show in Apple Podcasts or just by sharing this episode with a friend. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson.